True North Disability Planning was founded by Eric Jorgensen. One of his biggest challenges was how to respond when asked, what do you need, by his disabled son's case manager or other professionals. This was especially true as he was trying to prepare for the transition of his son from high school and into adult services. Eric couldn't find a lot of information and nothing that clearly spelled out that this is what you need to do and how you go about doing it. So he created Roadmaps. Roadmaps is available for every state and it clearly spells out exactly what needs to be accomplished with links to where you need to go. And whenever possible, he also included all the forms that you will need to submit in order to be successful. Visit their website at truenorthdisabilityplanning.com to receive 15% off your state roadmap using code NAV15, N-A-V-15. Again, that's truenorthdisabilityplanning.com and enter NAV15 at checkout to receive 15% off your roadmap. Hello, friends, and welcome to Coffee with Caregivers. I'm your host, Jess Ronnie, and today I'm excited to introduce to you Robert Ferrari. Robert is the executive director of Gateway Center, which is a residential community for disabled adults and includes a day program. Robert's journey with disabilities began when he became a parent caregiver to two children with invisible needs. He also has experience in profound disabilities with his wife, whose sister is profoundly disabled and lived in an institution until she was transferred to a group home years ago and her life improved greatly. I loved diving into what the mission of Gateway Center is all about, how they serve this population, and how we as parent caregivers can glean insights as we contemplate and consider options for our disabled loved ones. I know you are going to love this episode. And just a reminder, I always love to hear what you think about these episodes. So please rate and review, leave a comment. And if you have somebody in mind that would be an awesome guest, please reach out and let us know at info at thelucasproject.org. And now introducing Robert. Welcome, Robert. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. And as we begin, can you just give us a short synopsis of who you are, how you are a caregiver, and what you do in life? Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to to speak on your podcast. Really appreciate it. And so I am the um, executive director of a nonprofit in Monterey County called Gateway Center of Monterey County. Um, We are celebrating our 60th year of caring for those with um, disabilities. And so that's one of the things I do. I'm a father of of two children, both who in their uh, beginning stages of their educational experience had IEPs um, through their high school years. And so we had to sort of support that through the years. 
as well as at a couple of points during my career, I was a principal of a non-public school as well as a private school. So being on the other side of the IEPs in that way, so a real a lot of experience with IEPs. And now in working with the folks that we do here, it's ISPs, which is individual service plans, not necessarily individual um, education plans. So all of my career has been in nonprofits, all 36 years, 23 of that as an executive director for a few nonprofits. So I've been in the nonprofit space all of my adult life and have sort of thrived with that and, and have tried to do what I could to for the communities that I both live and work in. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's begin with your children and then we'll we'll segue into Gateway. Sure. So when did you discover that your children had additional needs and what did that journey look like for you and your wife? Yeah, I think it was very young. I think for my daughter, who was our oldest, she was very petite when she was young. And so we were a tiny bit concerned that 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 there would be some issues with that. And fortunately, it wasn't so much. There was a little bit of delays, but we did know that going into the, my wife had severe dyslexia. I had some dyslexia, both had ADHD. So unfortunately, we, we brought a lot to the table. <laughs> right. So the genes weren't to, stacked in their so, favor. <laughs> yeah. So in order to continue on with, but it was, yeah, but both, for both of them, it was even in their sort of preschool years, you know, I, at the time I was running a, a nonprofit that went from toddler through school age. So for my son, I had caregivers come to me pretty early on and saying, you know, <laughs> his coordination is a little bit off. He's, uh, you know, he uh, is taking a little bit longer time to, to walk and to do some of the other things that sort of uh, traditional milestones would suggest that he should be a little further along. So we kept um, a good eye on that. And when he started kindergarten, we brought all of that to the table and said, hey, we we think there are some things that um, the school needs to be aware of. Um, I might work for the school, so it was it was also she could also keep an eye on that and and um, knew all the teachers and and special ed and all that. So that was a supportive system for my daughter. Again, once she got to first grade, um, we knew that that handwriting and spelling and reading were going to be a challenge, and they were for her until she got to high school, where she got just amazing amount of support from both teachers, administrators, the special ed department, peers, families. It was just, you know, a whole community that supported her. And she just thrived once she got to high school and amazingly began reading and reading and reading, even with the severe dyslexia. And mm -hmm. I think that supported her. And for her, the, the awesome thing is now she's um, an assistant principal in charge of special education at, at a school here in Northern California. So she's lived it she saw she has seen both sides of, of the ieps and now as an administrator i think she's you know very intuitive and very supportive of both the student and, and family needs because she's seen the other side my son who was diagnosed i think when he was second and third grade with extrapia um was sort of told by a doctor like hey you know i know you like sports but you probably need to sort of think of other things because you're just not going to have uh, the coordination and and the skill set to to play in competitive sports so 
he thanked the doctor for his recommendation and ended up continuing in sports and, you know, high school football and, and some other things when his team won some some awards and championships. And, and now he's thriving at uh, Cal Berkeley in their athletic department, doing their analytics and doing a bunch of sports stuff. So, you know, he, they're both sort of living their dream in spite of the fact that earlier on they had their they had their barriers. But again, it was very supportive communities and us as parents that sort of supported them. But they, you know, part of it was just their own will to to want to succeed, to want mm-hmm. to overcome whatever it was and not really use it as either an excuse or allow it to get in the way of their dreams and their path. I love that. So it sounds like primarily it was kind of those invisible needs. You know, mm-hmm. you have you have kind of these two categories in the special needs world, those parents of children with profound disabilities like myself, and then which has its own set of challenges for sure. And then parents like yourself who have more of these invisible needs, which also has a set of challenges because I think you have to probably fight really hard for things because Um, you have to make your case. (laughs) Did you, did you find that in your journey with your children because they weren't so noticeable, this extra urgency to get them the supports and was that any more difficult because the disabilities weren't as noticeable? I think when they were younger, yes, because yeah, again, uh, you know, I know the term is thrown around a bit, you know, helicopter parents. So when they were, you know, the, when they were in first through fifth grade, we were in tune to the fact that they were going to have some challenges and, and they started manifesting themselves. And then in, in them with their frustration of, of not being able to articulate or, you know, answer the questions and in particular, putting them down on paper for both of them was a real struggle. And luckily, as they got into middle school and then in high school, technology became, you know, more available to them and um, they took advantage of that and, and really thrived with that. But yeah, early on, you know, we were on occasion told, oh, don't worry about it. They'll either grow out of it or it was not going to be a challenge for them. So don't don't worry so much about it. But they grew up in a, in a small community, but also a community with a lot of competitive kids. Early on, <laughs> they're preparing them. They're preparing them for college in third grade, right? And they sort of wanted to be where their peers were, but couldn't with the sort of the way things were set up. So, luckily, during those years, they got some accommodations for their spelling and, and some other things and handwriting. And again, the more the more we were able to work with and, and in some cases educate the, the teachers and, and the provider care providers, um, the more we were all able to sort of work in conjunction and understand that there were um, things that they needed to work to through and needed some support and they needed, you know, just some some compassion and empathy during those times that they struggled and a little bit of just sort of cheerleading to let them know that even with these that they, they would be okay. Would you attribute your experiences as being their dad as to what landed you in your role at Gateway Center? Or was that a different, how did that all come about? How did you find yourself in this position? 
Right. I think I, I think it attributes to it not, not only with their individual cases and again sitting um, a minimum of twice a year in IEPs and and other sessions and and with their resource providers. It was definitely helpful um, as well as again running a non-public school as part of a foster youth residential program was also sort of that. And then I think the third thing was the fact that unfortunately my wife's sister had severe handicaps and disabilities, nonverbal, and unfortunately lived in the state institution system for a very long time. And so when they would go visit her, she would just be slumped over and not, not a lot of response. And then as those sort of institutions went away and she finally got into a really great group home and a really great day program, those visits were different. She, even though, again, she was nonverbal, she would sit up and she would, you know, her hands would be flailing in excitement of their visit and, and her caregivers. And um, you could see the joy even in a different communicative way. So from that perspective, I had seen really bad care, but then I saw really great care. Mm. So when the opportunity to come to Gateway Center was was available to me, I came and took a visit and I was really in tune with, okay, how are those interactions going? What What is being done? What is being seen? What is What do these folks do to support those in our care and those in our programs? And what I saw, and I use it to this day, four years later, is really good care and compassion, just being in tune with the needs of, of every individual who comes through our doors or in our programs. And I say, okay, this, again, is a really great example of, of what good care looks like, and they just need an administrator to sort of drive things through so that, number one, you know, this little jewel um, in Monterey County that only parents know about that are close by really needs to be got out there so that the sort of innovative things that have gone on over the six years can be sort of articulated and and out there. And, and you know, if we end up being a role model for other programs or innovations, then um, that's even great that if other people can sort of model some of the things that, that are going really well here. Yeah, I want to I wanna park here for a bit as somebody who is creating a residential home for my son. Um, and because I think I think you're exactly right. We create these models so that other people have inspiration and so that they can take what we've created and not necessarily recreate the wheel, but let's Let's make it accessible and attainable so that others can follow in our footsteps because you're not going to solve the residential problem for disabled adults and I'm not going to solve the residential problem for disabled adults, but we can be a part of the equation that hands a model off to other people and says, here, copy what we've done, mm-hmm. create it yourself. So how long has Gateway Center been around? That's my first question. Sure. And so officially, we are celebrating our 60th year providing care for the disabled. The interesting story about Gateway Center, one of the things that makes it unique is now prior to that, in the late 50s, a group of families got together who had young children with with challenges and and, um, disabilities, and there were no programs for them. There was no one really sort of fighting the battle to to get um, things going. So they just banded together, worked with the County Office of Ed, and for their children started building programs so that their children would have somewhere to go and somewhere to to thrive and not just sort of be stuck in a room at home. And so that sort of grew into a nonprofit. But the cool thing about it is that 
first core group of parents and, and children, rather than what most nonprofits do is sort of like, okay, well, we care for toddlers or we care for preschoolers, we care for school age children or adults, so on. The program grew with that first group of kids. So first it was a, a sort of toddler preschool type of program, mm -hmm. then a school age program, and then a middle school, and then a teenage program. And it was, you know, approximately 40 years ago that it became an adult program when these when this first core right. group of uh, <laughs> participants became adult. So the program grew with this core group of folks who needed help and support. And then brought others along to, to okay. sort of build what we have now. So it was a very unique approach back when they sort of started this. But yeah, we've been providing care for, for 60 years through now residential programs, day programs. And in particular, we have this, what I think is a pretty amazing, innovative program called Without Walls, which is for students who have aged out of the school system, but really, again, want a place to be, want to continue their learning, want to get life skills and and continue their education. But most importantly to me is just gather with 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 others and have a core group of of other students that are their friends now and that they know every day that they can be with and, and share what is going on and share challenges and share successes and just, you know, have relationships with, with people who they know have similar challenges to them. And it's just a, a really cool, thriving program and the students with it that are thriving. How many do you serve in the day program? And then how many do you serve in the residential component? Yeah. So for the day program, in the Without Walls program, I think right now we have about 16 and that's about capacity. We, you know, okay. we probably will add maybe a few more and, and one more um, provider. Um, we're also looking at expanding that program to other parts in the county. It, it's a real need. And so we're working with a couple of nonprofits and, uh, and educational entities about finding space into the future to, to sort of model this program in other parts of the county. In our other day programs, we probably have about another 40 people come in just during the day. And then in our residential program, we have 30 on site on our main campus um, in Pacific Grove. And then we also have a small group home that houses four. Navigating the maze of disability benefits, resources, and services can be incredibly difficult because no two states are the same, and it doesn't seem like anything is ever written in plain language. You need a guide, someone who will help you understand what you might be eligible for and how to apply. That's what True North Disability Planning was created for. Eric Jorgensen started True North Disability Planning because he was frustrated with a lack of straight answers. Please let Eric be your special needs navigator. Visit their website at truenorthdisabilityplanning.com to receive 15% off your state roadmap using code NAV15, N-A-V-15. Again, that's truenorthdisabilityplanning.com and enter NAV15 at checkout to receive 15% off your roadmap. Do you have any parameters around who can be admitted um, to either the day program or the residential? I know as I've spoken to numerous um, 
executive directors in positions similar to yours as we're creating Hope Farm, we were told that you have to focus on either behavioral needs or high personal care needs. But to like intermingle those can be a recipe for disaster because if you have those high personal care needs and those high behavioral needs, you're kind of asking for the perfect storm (laughs) (laughs) kind of waiting to happen. I'm wondering if you have certain parameters that you also have to kind of follow as you pick the residents that will work well for your facility. Right. And I think it's, it's trying to have some parameters, but also sort of, you know, looking at ways to make things worth as possible, if possible, which is, is honestly isn't always the case. But yeah, I think that what we strive for, especially in our residential program, are, are folks who we can bring in and support and they can thrive and live with others with some of the similar sort of challenges that they have. So I can't say that, you know, we take highly severe behavioral sort of issues, but when I look at the folks that we have on campus, you know, some of them um, over time have sort of developed things that one consider, you know, sort of on a severe, severe behavioral sort of pattern. And we figure out how to, how to sort of work with that, you know, cause there, there are residents and, and once, once they're in, <laughs> yeah, we, we do our best to, to continue on. And, you know, we had folks here. Um, I think we have one who's been here 38 years, one who's been 40, one who's been here 42 years. And so at, at some point you figure out what their needs are, you figure out how to support them because they're just going to be here. They're going to be here until, you know, they're not. And so we, and the other thing that, that's important is that we work really closely with our regional center, which in our case is San Andreas Regional Center. The way the system works here in California and in this is they actually have to um, sort of refer folks to us. They, mm-hmm. folks, yeah, folks can come to us and take a tour and understand what we do and, and sort of get a feel for if it's a good fit. But it's really the regional center they have to go through and get referred to us. Um, so we do keep in mind things that are more challenging to to deal with and and see if we can accommodate that. Uh, I don't think for us there's anything that is completely black and white because again, even if there are behavioral challenges, are are those things? You know, we can't take a lot of violent kind of behavior. You know, that could be very disruptive for the rest of the group and and for the staff. So we really don't train on that. Mm -hmm. But we do train on on sort of behavioral sort of things that would cause sort of a a little bit of an uproar in a particular classroom and and how to sort of manage that and hopefully de-escalate situations. So, you know, we we try not to be so black and white in every situation because once once we have a person visit, whether it's for a residential or for a day program or for without walls, we see if it looks like it's a good fit. And if it looks like they can thrive in that, then we do our best to try to accommodate whatever it is that the challenges that they bring with them. And again, for some of our folks, especially in our Without Walls program, even though majority of them are coming back to the classroom in person, we still have a handful that that do better and thrive during Zoom. And so we, we try to accommodate that as well. And, and we have a, a dedicated staff member who's working with them on Zoom to make sure that they're we can simulate as best we can the same experience as being in classroom. So in those cases, we can probably take on a little bit more challenges because they're not necessarily in the classroom and and taking up uh, a lot of staff time just to sort of keep them 
keep them whatever they need to do to get through the day. So we try to accommodate as much as we can, and we sort of rely on the regional center to do a little bit of screening on our behalf because we've worked hand in hand with them for many, many, many years, you know, over 30 years of them providing us with referrals that they sort of get a sense of what's a good fit and what might be a little too much of a, of a challenge to our programs. So this is going to be a difficult question, um, and it's one I've really wrestled with as well, because we, we've we come to the realization as well that we can't necessarily accommodate those really high, extreme, violent behavioral needs. And I've had people say to me, well, what what are those families supposed to do then? Nobody will take them. And I don't have an answer. I've I've switched this idea around in my mind even about I mean, I'm talking about those individuals who land half their family in ER because they're so violent um, and aggressive. I don't know what the solution is for those families. If we need to revisit some sort of institutionalized model for individuals Mm -hmm. like that, because their families are drowning. I mean, Mm -hmm. these, these are the families that we hear about on the nightly news who finally take the situation into their own hands and do something horrific to their child or themselves. Do you have any thoughts surrounding this? Yeah, no, I, I, for me, I think the only thought that comes to mind and again, it's not, it's not a solution for all, unfortunately. And I do have a lot of empathy for those, those families because I, I can, tell again especially working with foster youth who had emotional disabilities and some severe behaviors right and and again they they grow up right and and those things don't don't go away i would wish for everyone to have access to really good behavioral support staff behavioral technicians and behavioral therapists i think that isn't an end-all solution but I know that we have one here. In fact, we have an, a gentleman who sort of started in this world probably in the last six to, to nine months and is completely thriving. And, you know, he honestly, he's just a unicorn. He just knows how to sort of identify issues and come up with solutions, which is always the tough thing, right? We can all sort of see visually the things are going wrong, but coming up with, with even little nuggets of solutions that that momentarily help situations aren't aren't always readily available. And, and folks like really good behavioral therapists, they're just they're just not that many out there. And so even when a family has access to one, it might be such small bites that it that it may not in the end make that much of a difference. But if people can if if we had more of those kinds of folks going into homes and talking to parents, reassuring them that hey there 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 might be some opportunities for either respite or relief or or while we can't take care of all the behavioral problems if you do this one thing maybe it helps with that one thing that that to not get an escalation mm-hmm. then there's something there right because like i can you know i can imagine that these folks are just grasping at straws at this point trying to come up with anything that, that isn't severe and i think if we had more of those folks available to families at least the families would have some sort of set of tools that would not solve the problem, but maybe maybe mitigate it. And so, so some of those escalations could be minimized. Yeah. And this population is kind of the demographic that I speak into. It's more of those severe behaviors nobody will will take. So what do you think 
is that solution for the residential component? Because I know a lot of these families are like, I don't want to do this anymore. Their their child is 25, 26, 27. They have holes in the walls. TVs are being smashed every other day. Like, what what is the solution for a family like that long term? Yeah, I, I think that's a huge challenge, and and I don't. I think it seems that something that we all sort of grapple with, especially those who have been in um, the nonprofit space for a long time, because we 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 sort of pride ourselves on in coming up with some solutions that support our communities and and the families within them, and then you come across something like this that there just isn't anything easy. There aren't a lot of things out there like that you can point to and say, hey, they've had success in this community with this. So what, you know, what would that look like for us if we tried that in our community? Mm-hmm. And I think the best that I can, you know, I could advise is continue to build support, continue to look at ways of even if you bring in individual service providers just for short respites that, you know, you can sort of step out of the situation and, and get a little bit of relief, you know, trying to find those kinds of caregivers that are willing to go into these situations and are equipped with ways to support the child, the individual who is the person causing so much conflict and, and so much physical pain, whether it's individually or, or to to property, and, and to see if there's ways to get support so that at least there's momentary rest, because I can imagine that these folks have this 24-7, the year over year, and I can see how it would definitely sort of beat you down, even in the best situation of mm-hmm. wanting to do the, be- the best for your, your children at some point, you meet your edge, and, and there's, and you just, that's enough for you. And yeah. unfortunately, I don't think there is any easy answer for them other than try everything. Right. <laughs> Throw lots of darts at the board yeah. and one sticks. That's basically where we're at. Where do you see the biggest need for improvement for parent caregivers overall? Like what, if you could solve one issue for parent caregivers, what would that be? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's it's helping, helping parents, helping families relatively early on. Because again, I think our Without Walls program is thriving because as they got the end of their educational experience, the real cliff of, of where they could be helped with the school district, parents are are have a lot of angst, a lot of nervousness of what do I do next? You know, where can I put them? Because again, they really don't want them just stuck at home, not doing anything. Right. I know that the kids in, I call them kids, the students in our programs, have a lot of capacity. They're brilliant folks. When I go in there and we talk about things, geography and history and trivia and math and science and history, they dig deep into those subjects and are very articulate and and way past my capacity. And so they just need those opportunities to, to show that, to showcase what their capacities are and not necessarily focus on, on what they, what they can't do. And so the more I think we can do to show that there is a continuum of both care and education and, and opportunities for young people, the more that parents might feel supported along the way and and know that there are opportunities once they disconnect with the school because you know hopefully from the most cases those are very sort of you know a team of people who are supporting the student along the way 
I know there are times where it can be a bit um, adversarial because the parent really knows what their student needs. And, and sometimes the school either doesn't have the capacity to fulfill that or doesn't necessarily have the visionaries to step out of the square box and say, oh, no, we can, we're going to do whatever we can to support these students and um, while they're with us. And that the more that I think we can support parents and let them know there can be a continuation and get those who have the capacity to, in the end, be, you know, productive individuals, maybe on their own. But the more that we can build their skill set, the more that we can let them know that there is support and that their capacities can be both um, celebrated and that it gets them sort of moving forward so that they can be productive members of the community, I think that's all important, but I think it needs to start early, mm-hmm. you know, when they're in school as elementary to let folks know like, hey, you know, we're going to be along for this ride. And, you know, even when we hand off, there are good programs that we can hand you off to. I think that would make um, parents a little bit less nervous about what that experience might be later on. Yeah, I like that. I often speak a lot about building that community around yourself, building that tribe, because if you Mm -hmm. don't have that tribe and that support network, it is very isolating and exhausting because it's you, the parent, doing everything. So I I like that advice, finding that tribe, finding that support system Mm -hmm. and really relying on one another from from day one and allow these people to help guide you through this process, because it is an exhausting process. And the more people that are involved in your child's care, the better off you're going to be. So yeah, that's great advice. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I have three takeaway questions that I like to ask each of my guests. The first one is, how has being a caregiver changed you? Oh, that's a great question. For me, I think when I think about that question, one, I think I've been a caregiver almost all my life. Again, my, my brother and I were latchkey kids who, I being the oldest, so after school, I would be there, you know, making the making the grilled cheese sandwiches and soup and, you know, making sure that both of us got our homework done. And then from there, as I sort of got into adult age, I started working with YMCA's and Boys and Girls Club. So always sort of having that sort of caregiving sort of aspect. So I think I've been a caregiver for a very long time, not only with my own children, but You know, my wife also does after school care and um, summer camp. So I think between the two of us, we feel we've cared for over a thousand, a thousand children and and now adults in our life. And for me, it's just the opportunity for I I get a lot out of it. I learn from so many people, so many um, young people and now older people that I just learn from. But a lot of what I see through that, as I spoke earlier about care and compassion, I see that a lot. And I know that it. For me, um, care, compassion, love is is something that I've been able to sort of develop along the way. So I get just as much out of it as I think that I give. And so those moments that I have with folks, last night we took part in our community parade. So I put a bunch of folks in our new electric van and we were in the parade and the joy of them just waving to the folks on on the side of the parade you you just can't um you can't replace that just experiences that i've had with the uh, interactions with people along the way have just been precious and have built my personal and professional development over the years yeah well said second question if you had 1 hour all to yourself how would you spend it 
Wow, another great question. And that's interesting. So for me, because I'm a commuter, I commute in about an hour um, each way by myself. So I'm li- I listen to great co- podcasts like yours along the way. So I have that sort of, you know, hour of isolation time that I even try to be somewhat productive in. For me, if I had an hour and, and somebody said, you know, you can do anything, I want to be around family and friends around the dinner table or lunch table, whatever. I really feel that, you know, we get a lot done by just sharing a meal with people, the the rich conversations, the 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 anecdotal storytelling. And for me, laughter. Laughter is such a big thing. So if I can both have a you know, guttural, big belly laugh at, at those kind of meetings or, or given or say something that has somebody else laugh and, and be entertained, then, then I feel good about it. So, yeah, just having people around the table and, and, and enjoying themselves, that, that to me is what I would do with, with that hour. Yeah, good food, good company. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Nice glass yeah. of wine. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, how many cups of coffee are you drinking these days? Uh, usually two, two in the morning, two strong cups, two very strong cups. It's usually the second one to try to get done by about 9, 30, 10, and then I'm good to go for the rest of the day. Yep. Sounds very similar. Um, <laughs> and where can people find out more about Gateway Center and all the amazing things that you have going on? Absolutely. So we have a website, www.gatewaycenter.org. And we're on all the social media channels. And yeah, so we've been doing great work for 60 years. We've had a lot of innovative stuff going on this past year. Right now, we're raising funds to renovate our courtyard to make it just an amazing sort of legacy courtyard where where our folks can go and grow their own food, but have a place to celebrate. As I said, break bread whenever they want to dance. Uh, have events. And so the great news is that we got a $150,000 uh, match challenge match from the Wolf Foundation. And we're about $120,000 raised to match it. So we got like this last little $30,000 we are trying to raise right now. And we're part of a program here called Monterey County Gives, which will also match um, the dollars that we raised during the holiday. So yeah, we're looking forward to that and we're getting very close. So anyone who wants to support that, please go to our website and you'll see how, and we would appreciate it. Well, as a fellow executive director, I'm rooting for you because I know (laughs) it's this year end push that we're all like, come on, we got to make our budget. Mm -hmm. So yep, I hear you. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and thank you for sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for having me and letting me share my story and the Gateway story and the opportunity. And thank you so much for all the great work that you're doing and giving folks the opportunity to come on and tell our story. Thanks for joining us today on Coffee with Caregivers. And if you'd like to be considered as a guest for a future episode, please reach out at Jess at thelucasproject.org. And as always, let's do what we do best. Just keep living. Keep living.